Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics. Thank you very much indeed for joining us from wherever you are around the world. And as ever, we have got so much to cram in in our time together. I'm Steve Richards. I forgot to introduce myself to new listeners. And there are new listeners all the time on Rock and Roll Politics. So this is what we're going to do, if it's okay uh, with all of you. I'll reflect on the Sleaze saga, in inverted commas, and put it into a bit of context and reflect on its significance. Uh, Then we'll hear from many of you fantastic questions, insights on urgently topical themes, uh, which um, have been very stimulating for me to to read. If I don't get to all the questions, I get many, many questions. Um, I've read them all, and they're all on the list. We'll see how we do in terms of uh, time. Uh, Before all of that, thank you all those who came to the uh, show on Saturday at the Witham Arts Centre, the Barnard Castle Rock and Roll Politics Special. Uh, It was a great evening, and and the evening before at the Derby Book Festival. Of course, coming up, it's getting closer. Uh, Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special, on uh, that's on at King's Place on December the 9th. And the evening before on the South Coast at the Great Rope Tackle Art Centre, uh, a Christmas special there. That's December uh, the 8th um, at the Richmond Book Festival on Wednesday of this week. I think that's sold out, but it's being streamed, talking about the Prime Ministers we never had. Uh, yeah, so uh, a lot going on. And, oh yeah, and, and at Chorley Wood, the following Monday at their legendary bookshop, where they hold some epic events, or under its auspices. So yeah, uh, the never-ending tour, I call it. Bob Dylan, watch out. Anyway, uh, on to my reflections briefly on the whole Owen Patterson affair and its implications. It seems to me, in terms of the political implications, there is real cause for concern for Johnson and the Conservative government for this reason. When you look back at the rare occasion Labour has done well from opposition, Uh, in other words, well, let's be more precise, won an election from opposition, They hardly ever do it. Uh, They are useless at winning from opposition. Uh, The issues that have propelled them to power have not been ideological. On one level, this is very sad. It's difficult to have a grown-up ideological debate in the UK. Uh, When there is a debate between right and left as kind of defining themes of a general election, Uh, The media mediates, the media is on the right, the newspapers hugely influence the tone and uh, more than the tone actually of uh, BBC coverage. So what have been ideological elections? Uh, Just to give a couple of examples, uh, 1983, Uh, Thatcher uh, was at the sort of height of her power post Falklands pomp. Uh, and utterly dominant in her party, enabling her to espouse in a way that was brilliantly accessible uh, forms of kind of economic populism, really about the small state, lower taxes, getting the state off your back, and so on, Uh, versus a Labour Party led by Michael Foote 
on a manifesto described at the time as the longest suicide note in history. But what's quite interesting about that manifesto is vast amounts of it have subsequently been implemented. And some of the arguments are currently being used by Boris Johnson, including leaving the European Union and a kind of Keynesian approach to economic recovery. But anyway, they were slaughtered. Same again in 87. I've mentioned on this podcast before, Neil Kinnock in that election did that brilliant speech where he tried to reclaim arguments about the state as an enabler. Uh, And it was a speech that Joe Biden nicked to his great cost in the late 1980s. You know, why am I the first Kinnock of a thousand generations of Kinnock to go to university? All that stuff. Labour slaughtered. Now let's look at when Labour, on those rare occasions, have won elections. Uh, it was in uh, from from opposition, 1964 and 1997. What were the themes? Uh, sleaze and incompetence. Non-ideological themes, uh, which means that there is a rare combination of uh, alliances taking place. So Tory-supporting newspapers turn on tired Conservative governments when they detect sleaze and incompetence. Uh, That gives permission to the BBC to be bolder in its coverage of such issues. And in 64, tired, long-serving Conservative government, there had been the Profumo affair. Uh, There were questions about competence. Macmillan had gone by 64, but he carried out that uh, botched reshuffle, the night of the long knives, and so on. And Wilson made, in effect, an a political pitch that Labour would be more competent, honest, and modern. Fast forward to 97, John Major's government, uh, the big theme uh, polls suggested in terms of voters' concerns was sleaze. Wholly uh, misplaced in many respects, but that was the case. Labour went big on sleaze. And the other new Labour message really was in effect, when you strip back the uh, verve with which uh, Tony Blair projected New Labour, was we will be more competent than you. Uh, We will not challenge many of the prevailing orthodoxies, uh, uh, ideological orthodoxies, but we will manage more competently. Uh, And the papers famously turned on that major government. Uh, The BBC felt freer to uh, go for it too, and Labour won a landslide. Fast forward to now, and you can see some of that happening. This isn't a prediction, by the way, that um, uh, Johnson and his government is heading in the same direction, uh, but it is an observation that this is dangerous terrain for them. And you can see that with some of its newspapers turning, uh, the BBC having therefore permission to, at ten past eight, feature uh, this issue, that uh, astonishing interview with John Major on Saturday. And it remains astonishing. People say, oh, he's a Remainer, he hates Johnson. Maybe true. But for a Tory prime minister to make an onslaught of that scale on a current Tory prime minister, and Major spoke knowing about the pressures you can feel from former prime ministers, he... His life was made hellish by Margaret Thatcher. Uh, it, it, was, it, it was a big moment. And 
The other reason why it's dangerous in terms of electoral consequences is that these issues are very accessible. Wholly justifiably, some columnists have wondered why it is that these issues permeate when, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths in the pandemic and uh, a, a Brexit that is causing calamitous chaos um, don't. And that <clears throat> will be a subject perhaps for another podcast. But there is no doubt that this is kind of accessible stuff and ones that normally, though Johnson often transcends normal political assumptions, normally uh, voters feel disillusioned when they sense that there is one rule for elected politicians, the prime minister and others, and another for them. So it's dangerous terrain, and for Johnson particularly it is, because he is a curious figure, um, a, an exuberant performer who's a bit of a loner. Uh, he was a columnist. Uh, I know what that's like. You file on your own, you write on your own, you file on your own. He would then go out and give an after-dinner speech on his own and all the rest of it. And famously, to use that cliche, he's never really played by the rules. I think one of the most vivid images I've got about him, do you remember, just at the start of the Tory leadership campaign, in 2019, there was that story about a row he had with his then-girlfriend Carrie in the flat. But the thing that I found most interesting was neighbours saying that his car, Johnson's car, was parked outside the flat. And it was peppered with parking notices, uh, not even taken off the window, and clearly with uh, little or no intention to pay up. Um, and that sense that the rules don't apply to him and that rules, it's not just self-indulgence, it's, it's almost a political philosophy, that rules are a bit of a pain, hence his libertarianism, hence his inability to wear a mask sitting next to David Attenborough in Glasgow, that rules are all a bit of a pain. And here is the twist now. In a way, I think, he, he kind of assumes being prime minister puts him in a position of such power he can absolutely play out uh, to that political philosophy because he is, as we've discussed on this podcast before, currently within his party, although events of recent days I think has changed that a bit, so powerful. So he kind of assumes, as Tory Prime Minister with a big majority ahead in the polls, and those polls are a crucial context to his capacity to get away with things. If he does things and finds the next day his poll lead has increased, he's going to carry on trying to get away with things. So voters have a big role in all of this. Uh, they are powerful to shape events, but so far they've chosen to use that power by endorsing his every move. Um, so he kind of thinks he's powerful, but here is the twist. Sorry, I've been delaying the twist. Actually, as Prime Minister, although on one level, of course, you are incredibly powerful, on another, you are constrained by a whole range of rules. Um, which he's never really had to adapt to before. The London mayor, it's much less so. Uh, Foreign Secretary uh, Theresa May had marginalised him. No one knew what he was getting up to. But 
you know, the rules of what ministers have to declare, the rules of um, what MPs are allowed to do. And there are a thousand other such constraints, which I know he finds frustrating on a daily basis. There is a level of scrutiny that he loathes. He finds Prime Minister's questions irritating. Um, in the early days, he found it more than that, when Keir Starmer appeared to be fairly effective. Now he just finds it irritating. Uh, I don't know if you saw his interview on CNN from Glasgow with uh, uh, the Christiana Amnapur, is that her name? But anyway, uh, she was very forensic. There are some questions about that interview uh, coming up, I think. And... Um, he just looked away to his aides like a naughty boy during the interview, asking for one of the lads to help, you know, like the school bully being caught out and saying, come on, lads, what? So he's kind of looked around rather helplessly because scrutiny uh, is something he cannot bear and isn't used to. And yet, of course, as prime minister, even with this Commons majority, there are a lot of constraints and scrutiny. Um, and he, he tries to avoid it. He picks a weak cabinet who are too scared to challenge him, uh, who are kind of rolled out like poor old uh, Quasi Kwarteng last week to defend what they had done with Owen Patterson, and then hours later it was reversed. Do you remember old Bob Jenrick, Robert Jenrick, honest Bob Jenrick, uh, went out to defend Johnson when he declared having been... Uh, alerted that he had been with a COVID person, pinged. Um, he announced that he was exempt from the need to uh, uh, self-isolate. Uh, that was last summer, and Honest Bob Jenrick went on Mar and all the other Sunday programmes to defend this decision. And then there was a U-turn an hour later, and then his reward, Jenrick, was to be sacked in the reshuffle. And even old Frosty, who we talk a lot about on this podcast, this non-elected courtier, uh, is wholly dependent on patronage from Boris Johnson, which could go at any moment if Johnson had the intelligence to realise the damage Frosty is doing to Britain. So he appoints people who just do what he says, which is, by the way, don't believe any of the briefings that Johnson was let down by the chief whip or Johnson was let down by X, Y and Z. He decides everything of significance in this government and they all bow and follow the commands for now while he's ahead in the polls and have the, has the authority of a vote winner and so this was his decision to try and get Owen Patterson off the hook and then change the rules and so it is I think a moment of danger for the Conservatives I don't think we can say more than that some of the questions ask us to predict whether it's a turning point will come to them any second but I think it is, as I say, a moment of danger for the Conservatives because on matters where they should be challenged far more forensically, Brexit, uh, you know, a lot of the newspapers still say Brexit is brilliant and it's those bloody Europeans and the BBC rarely mention it and Labour rarely mention it. And Keir Starmer, I don't know if you saw him on Andrew Marr, uh, still looks uneasy when being asked about Brexit, when in many ways it could be a gift if you frame it uh, in, in a particular way. But these things are not 
scrutinised, and that is Boris Johnson's dream terrain. This is not dream terrain, so let's see how it goes. And that, as you can well imagine, is kind of where a lot of your questions uh, come from. Uh, Kieran Fallon. Uh, yeah, I met Kieran at the Derby Book Festival on Friday night. And, um, oh yeah, he Kieran attaches a couple of photos of our discussion when I was uh, signing books at the end. Um, and Kieran says, yeah, the highlight of his week, yes, unfortunately I mean it, is listening to the podcast on my headphones whilst walking my dog blue in the Peak District. I'm envious of that walk in the Peak District, Kieran, as we discussed. Um, not because you're listening to the podcast, but because you're walking in the Peak District. Well, and listening to the podcast. Um, anyway, uh, he asked a couple of questions. Was Jeremy Corbyn wrong to agree to the election in 2019? Um, yes, he was. And, uh, it, it, he sh and he was under huge pressure because Joe Swinson had called for it uh, out of a sort of self-destructive naivety and Nicola Sturgeon had called for it out of self-interest. So he was under huge pressure. But he could have stopped and kept that hung parliament going and should have done uh is owen the owen patterson debacle the start of the demise of uh boris johnson well as i said kieran it's it's in, such as the world of british politics at the moment i wouldn't make predictions about that but if i think all we can say is if the past is anything to go by it's a very dangerous moment for him and his government. And by the way, he was planning to do other sleazy, in inverted commas, I don't like that word. I mean, what does it mean? Um, you know, it's interesting. Will he still try and fiddle the rules to get Paul Dacre in as head of Ofcom, uh, for example, having been caught fiddling the rules or trying to fiddle the rules in this case? Um, uh, Daniel Erlem. Uh, hi, Steve. First time writing. Uh, love the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Oh, the book and the live shows. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, Kieran ended his email saying he was going to watch the stream of the live uh, Christmas special at King's Place with his favourite bottle of Rioja. Another great image. I'm envying Kieran's lifestyle. And Daniel uh, is, I think, I hope, maybe coming along to the show. He said, can't wait for the Christmas special at King's Place. Great. We are going to have to make sense of the entire year at that one. Um he was wondering about Owen Patterson's uh, saga. Is this as dodgy as the opposition make it out to be, and as many in the public might see it to be? Is this uh, one example where there will be that favourite word on this podcast, consequences, if the government are perceived to be behaving corruptly? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you take some of you to Kieran, Daniel, and... I think there will be consequences in the short term. Now, normally, I would confidently predict there would be longer-term consequences, as I say, based on long-serving Conservative governments in the past, uh, 64, 97. However, many voters think this is a new government, not the fourth term of a quite extraordinary sequence of Conservative administrations. Uh, all of which have been unconservative, to quote John Major, although he was just applying that to the Johnson one. Um, but 
So they think it's a new government. Uh, it partly depends on whether the Labour leadership can get its act together. Uh, there are signs of the shadow cabinet beginning to do so, I think, or parts of it. Um, so I can't make the prediction, Daniel, but I sense you think it might be. Um, Andrew Stewart in Sheffield has an interesting thing. You know, there have been quite a few questions about whether there can be uh, a kind of, in inverted commas, progressive alliance in the build-up to the election, rather than another election where you have one party, the Conservatives, commanding uh, the whole right of the spectrum. And Labour, Lib Dems, Greens, SNP, all tons of fractured opposition, which is, of course, one, though not the only reason, why Conservatives... Uh, win elections in the UK uh, to the point where we're close to, if they win again, a one-party state in terms of the Westminster government. So Andrew Stewart from Sheffield suggests um, uh, parties not forming an alliance but coming together in one set of policy areas. And he suggests these standards in public life, party funding, uh, the relationship between Westminster... Uh, UK and its various uh, countries, regions and local areas, probity and operation of elections, separation of powers and the independence of the judiciary, the role, powers and composition of the lords. Um, yeah, and oh, he says, by the way, he's discovered, do you, do you remember uh, at one of the King's Place shows, this genius in the audience said, watch out for Lee Rowley, the Conservative MP, who became a minister days later. Uh, Andrew wonders whether our new hero should be Angela Richardson, the PPS who resigned over the, that, the, the Patterson vote and then was reinstated in, in another farcical sequence, which certain other governments in the past would have been slaughtered for to the point where they would be just clinging on. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea, Andrew. Remember in the build-up to 97, uh, Tony Blair played the Lib Dems cleverly. Um, and it was a combination of artfulness and genuine conviction. And there was then a joint committee. I remember Ming Campbell was on it, Robin Cook was on it. Uh, they both got on very well uh, at looking at various constitutional matters, two parties coming together in opposition. Uh, the great thing, of course, was electoral reform, uh, which uh, Tony Blair offered a referendum on, but I, I know he never supported, really the electoral reform and famously didn't hold the referendum so yeah but i think that's a good idea because it symbolizes a coming together rather than a fracturing of that vote and if there is a fracturing in a way which means in key constituencies these votes are split there's only going to be one outcome at the next election uh tony ellis uh uh uh, he loves the podcast and listens driving home across Merseyside from Southport to uh, Wirral. Yeah, that's uh, I like I like the idea of that. A, a rather beautiful kind of uh, uh, beautiful journey. Am I, I? I don't know. Maybe that's going over the top. Um, how about a regular slot? This is quite interesting. Of silly or ridiculous political phrases. Can I start with playing politics used by Andrew Marr in his Sunday show in an interview with Keir Starmer? No one says to dentists, oh, you're just playing dentistry. Playing politics is what politicians are in politics for. That I, I think that's a brilliant uh, observation, uh, Tony, uh, because it sounds so dismissive. And it means politicians in interviews are trapped 
uh, if an interviewer accuses them of playing politics because it sounds awful. But of course they are. You know, of course Starmer sees this as a political opportunity. I believe, by the way, you know, with his background in the law and he's a figure of integrity, um, that he is genuinely angered and appalled. But sure, of course he's playing politics. It, it, he would be failing in, in his job if he didn't. But it sounds so derogatory as if, uh, you know, politicians should just pop up and say, there's not very much in this at all. We're all at it. Thank you and good night. Um, and there are other phrases like that that sound uh, kind of commonsensical. You know, oh, you know, oh God, yeah, there they are, playing politics. Um, uh, if you've got any more, Tony, I'll be, I'll be interested to hear him, but that's a good one. Uh, Daniela Barker. Uh, Danny. Uh, says, read the latest Tory Slee scandal. Has Boris's armour been chinked? Is this the beginning of the end or merely the end of the beginning? Well, you know, it has been chinked. Uh, it's, it is a beginning of the end, I think. Or no, maybe it's the end of the beginning. Um, but as I say, uh, Danny, I'm not making further predictions because there have been points, I thought the handling of the pandemic, very accessible issue, uh, would damage him. He soared in the polls uh, as Britain headed for record-breaking death rates, etc., etc. So I can't make predictions, but as I say, this is dangerous terrain. Um, Tim Barrow wonders whether Labour made a mistake not to agree an anti-sleaze candidate at the North Shropshire by-election, all the opposition parties getting together. Um, yeah, and what does that mean for local deals with Lib Dems and Greens not to oppose each other at certain seats in the next election? So I don't think that will happen, Tim. I don't think there will be four more packs. They're too difficult and traumatic to negotiate. The SDP and the Liberals really struggled in the 80s, uh, agreeing which party should fight which seat and so on, and they were a formal alliance. Um, I don't... I'm not... I know it worked. You know, Martin Bell stood in Neil Hamilton's Tatton constituency and won in 1997. But that was very different. Neil, ha ha Neil Hamilton was a candidate in that election. Um, and I think it is too playing politics <laughs> uh, to focus just on sleaze. It, it diminishes politics. What about the big policy areas? The art of being leader of the opposition is to link all these. There are patterns in Johnson's approach to... Uh, Brexit and other matters, the pandemic, with the events of recent days. They're not all kind of freakish. And, but this does, uh, an anti-sleaze candidate would suggest there is this single issue. Um, and it, it goes much wider than that. But Steve Petrie wonders whether, given what has happened, uh, Starmer now emerges as honest, uh, but sorry, Starmer's image of being honest but dull becomes more attractive. Um, I've always said that you know the key thing at an election is the juxtaposition of uh, prime minister and leader of the opposition in terms of what they represent. And if the juxtaposition is chaos versus solidity, dishonesty versus integrity, uh, it's Starmer's to win, but it might well not be. And that's why there are other issues for a leader of the opposition. But that this is an opportunity for him is self-evident. It is. Um, now, Simon Duffin, we last heard from him in Australia, uh, where he listened to the podcast Driving the 
country roads of Victoria. Uh, but he's moved now to the blustery piece of the uh, Gre Greenock Esplanade along the River Clyde. God, you get around, Simon. Um, he says, do you share my dislike for the term mainstream media, which seems to have become a term used to despise what people on both left and right see as parts of the media spouting views that run counter to their own. But Simon does go on to say, I have to admit, I don't listen to the Today programme anymore after more than 40 years previously, nor the BBC TV News, because for me they don't challenge the government enough on issues arising from Brexit. But I do turn to conventional media from around Europe. Yeah, he, he keeps an eye on Le Monde, the Irish Times, Die Zeit in Germany, as well as various UK news sites. Oh, and the podcast, of course. Um, yeah, well, it is the mainstream media. I mean, covers a thousand different outlets, and so you're right about that. But it is interesting that, um, you're like me, I've listened to the State Program forever. And don't very often these days. I tend to listen to podcasts first thing in the morning. And I don't watch the BBC news. It's too formulaic. You know that thing at 10 o'clock? Sort of eight items, two and a half minute packages, a couple of two ways, lasting two minutes. Um, I, I think they need to reinvent that. And yeah, they are, they, they are scared about raising Brexit very often. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Um, the Irish Times, I really, the quality of the writing is great. Um, so good tips there, Simon. And I hope you recover. You had a, I, I think Simon crashed into a kangaroo in Australia while driving or something traumatic. Anyway, hope you're okay. Uh, Yasmin Ali wonders, unlike other recent elections, I, oh yeah, this is the kind of thing about the 2017 election, which I've always kind of argued. Yasmin, I think, disagrees, that it's sort of been airbrushed out of history, the 2017 election. I think it was an election of great significance, fought between two parties, the Tories and Labour, both taking a, a sort of more progressive view of the state. Uh, it was in the Tory manifesto um, that, uh, I'm sure it was written by Nick Timothy, Theresa May's advisor, it's time to consider the good the state can do the government can do. And obviously we had the 2017 Corbyn manifesto. Uh, she goes into great deal in a very interesting way that um, it was uh, absolutely down to Brexit that Labour got a boost in its vote and not other issues. And that, I, I remember this as well, that, it, that, that it's a, a myth that Labour attracted uh, huge swathes of younger voters. It was more complex than that. Yeah, well, that's interesting, and, and, and thanks for all the detailed info on it. I still think it's an under-analyzed election, that one. Remember, the Tories did well in terms of votes cast. It was as uh, the highest since Thatcher's landslide win in 1987. And Gavin Barwell, uh, Theresa May's chief advisor in his book, points out that when he tells people that, they're taken aback because it's been an under-analyzed election. But anyway, thank you. Uh, talking of winning elections, Denise uh, Willier wonders. Um, she's heard Alistair Campbell's analysis, which she considers to be potent. OST, objective, where you want to get to, what you want to achieve, strategy. 
The key ideas you need to put in place to achieve your objective should be memorable and easily repeatable. Tactics. How do you visibly implement the strategy? These can adjust according to conditions and opportunities that arise. Uh, yeah, it's a brilliant summary of what you need to do in opposition and indeed in government, actually. Um, Denise argues that Keir Starmer is not doing this. I think uh, he's certainly not doing it enough and in a way uh, that um, coheres and is focused. So we could all, as we're listening to this podcast, summarise precisely the objective strategy and tactical approach. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I haven't read that before. Denise heard that on a podcast uh, that Campbell did. Okay, uh, oh yeah, listen to this from Joe Ruffles, who still tends to listen to the podcast while chopping broccoli in Berlin, at his home in Berlin. But he wrote the email, greetings from an airside lounge in Germany, where I await my flight to Newcastle, a hop, skip and eye test from Barnard Castle. Since we've been, uh, been denied rock and roll politics in Edinburgh for the past two years, the chance to meet up outside the N25 bubble. Um, and, uh, you know, so he... Uh, so, Joe, were you the one? I mean, because uh, Joe came, in other words, flew from Berlin to Barnard Castle to watch rock and roll politics on Saturday night. Um, and I spoke to, afterwards to a few people who said they listened to the podcast. Were you one of them, Joe? Because you didn't tell me you'd flown in from Berlin. I'd have bought you a bottle of wine or, no, champagne. Um, but anyway, if, if you did, that's amazing. He was, uh, Joe, as he was flying, um, noted the question that I mentioned briefly from Noah Keat last week about COP26 and the degree to which um, the measures will be implemented in a way that are economically feasible, electorally feasible, and so on. Uh, and uh, he, uh, Joe, wonders, uh, from the lofty promises being made in Glasgow, what legislation will actually result? Will it be wise? Will it work? And he says, what are the chances that the measures being put in place will be well-considered and effective? Do, you ha do we have hope of getting something sensible out of the legislative sausage machine? And what can we do to prod Parliament and our regulators into creating a system that cuts carbon while spurring innovation rather than by limiting life in a festival of joylessness? I think this is an important point, that if this whole mission becomes joyless and a sense of sacrifice, it's not going to happen. And it, it will only happen, as Joe suggests, by innovative ways. Um, to address these issues, including uh, modern technology for flying and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, I mean, God, uh, you know, this is a topic for 25 podcasts, uh, Joe. But let me know, did, did we have a chat afterwards? Because um, quite a few people travelled long, long journeys to get to Barnard Castle for the show on Saturday. Um, Berlin tops the lot if you, if you did it, if you pulled it off. Um, thank you, if you did. Uh, Stephen Townsley says, is parliamentary sovereignty just theoretical under the current Prime Minister? It's an interesting question because, of course, parliamentary sovereignty was at the heart of the argument for Brexit. It was the most interesting 
argument about Brexit. All the stuff about, you know, money for the NHS was nonsense. But there is an interesting argument about the sovereignty of Parliament. Again, it originates with the arguments put forward by Tony Benn against Europe and Jeremy Corbyn in that era. Um, and have been absolutely advanced by Boris Johnson. If you remember, before, when Cameron still hoped to get Johnson on side for his, the referendum, uh, Cameron was framing a UK sovereignty, sovereignty of Parliament bill just to please Johnson. And yet, as you suggest, even uh, since becoming Prime Minister, he's shown complete disdain for the British Parliament in all kinds of different ways. Um, Noah Keat, after triggering uh, thoughts from uh, Joe Ruffles in Berlin about uh, climate change, wonders about the relationship between the British Prime Minister and French President, given all the focus on the so-called special relationship with the US. Yeah, this is the big one. And I'm told that relations between Britain and France, when I say that, the British government and the French administration, um, not the rest of us. As Marina Hyde wrote in The Guardian the other day, we just live here. Um, but uh, are dire, much, much worse than, than even the public uh, perception of how bad it is. And it remains fundamental. Shared interests uh, in security, economic matters, uh, proximity. Um, it is utterly and as uh, Noah says, similar populations and economies, it is utterly bonkers that either side sees great electoral opportunity in stirring up a kind of loathing. But um, uh, you watch old uh, Johnson and Frosty, you know, the Article 16 and France, you know, uh, prime ministers always fight the same elections again if they've won one. And he will stir it up with Europe, which is why Kirstarmer has to have a coherent position well before the election, because they're going to make it an election issue. Um, okay, God, what? How long have we been going? We better. I've got um, because I've been on a never-ending tour. I've got quite a lot to do, but there are so many brilliant questions. I'm going to have to, I think, start to um, uh, summarize them a bit and um, uh, go through them. A bit more briefly, but here we go. A.V. Degger, I know you're not convinced there'll be an early election. I'm not. Uh, but I wonder what you and fellow listeners think of this scenario. Uh, the Brexit opportunist Frosty is about to pull the trigger on Article 16. Oh, yeah, I've just been talking about it. That's coincidence. Um, and could this mean a year of renegotiation with the EU before a potential exit on WTO terms, the dreaded no-deal scenario? It could do, although I think Johnson, I mean, Frosty doesn't, he kind of follows what he thinks Johnson wants. Johnson doesn't always know what he wants. He wants the politics of conflict. Whether he can cope with a no-deal, I wonder. Um, uh, that resets the clock, and we could be back to 2019 on the edge of the Brexit precipice. yes. A queue, uh, a potentially dark and extremely divisive winter election. Uh, I suppose you mean the following year, not this, obviously not this year, with the stakes at play, a Frosty Johnson deal, uh, sort of small-scale deal, or the Brexit ultras preferred no deal, no dive. Yeah, well, I think there will be a war, but I just think Johnson does have a sense of his electorate, and they are basically anti-politics, and they like him because they see him as a kind of, partly you know a good laugh 
And I don't think he'll want to risk an early election. But that's not certain. Nothing is certain. Um, but I do think they will stir it up with Europe um, because they think it works with the media and electorally. Um, Lizzie Price. I listen uh, to the podcast Walking the Dog on a Monday evening. Um, oh, thank you. It's a galvanizing and lightning start to my week. Oh, thank you very much. I hope you have a great walk um, uh, when you listen to this one, uh, Lizzie. Um, the latest U-turn on Patterson showed a total inability to think things through. Consequences again. Yeah, consequences. Such an important word. Uh, it was clearly wrong-headed from the start to try and scrap the Standards Committee because they didn't like its decision. So, um, given that it was wrong-headed from the start and it was clear that it was going to create a political fury, why did Johnson whip his party to vote to protect Patterson? Um, yeah, you see, given that it was wrong-headed, it raises an interesting uh, uh, question about Johnson's capacity to think through consequences. I think he does things, then worries about how the hell to deal with the fallout when the fallout erupts around him. And that's just the way he's always functioned. Um, so um, he, he is reported to have said, amidst the chaos of the fallout, uh, we're not as good at world-class chess as we thought we were. Um, and I don't think he's good at the game of chess at all, really. Um, he is good at winning elections, which involves the skills of a chess player to some limited extent. But running government and thinking through consequences, no. Else he wouldn't have embarked on this particular route. Um, oh, Lizzie, your son Tom from Durham University apparently came to the Barna Castle show, you tell tell me. Oh, that's great. Um, well, I, I, I did speak at the end to a couple of people from Durham, so I hope he was one of them, uh, Lizzie. Uh, uh, Mark Easton, um, uh, loving the podcast, I normally listen while walking around South London's beautiful Burgess Park. Oh, I, I haven't been to that park, Mark. I must, it sounds great. Um, a mate and I were in the pub the other day and trying to answer a question we thought you could help us with. Oh, let's see. I'm not sure. How far back in history do you have to go to find a prime minister as venal and dishonest as Boris Johnson? Uh, we're talking about moral character here, not political acumen. Uh, we couldn't think of a comparable 20th century political figure and wondered how far back you had to go to the 19th and 18th centuries to find one. I, don't th I think you're right. Uh, in the 20th century, there were many inevitably flawed prime ministers. All prime ministers arrive with epic flaws. Um, but, you know, if you look at those who, were con who have been condemned, in some ways unfairly, I think, Chamberlain, Eden... Uh, and one or two others, it was never over these issues of integrity. I mean, it ha issues of integrity have tormented recent prime ministers. We've talked about John Major, who was unfairly tormented by sleaze. Uh, 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 Blair accused of being a war criminal uh, over Iraq. Again, he made huge judgmental errors in relation to Iraq, but um, criminality was not the issue um so i i don't think there is a comparable figure to him and you can't really compare in the 19th and 18th centuries because the 
dynamics were so different in terms of what was possible for a prime minister to do, uh, the far more limited range of rules and levels of scrutiny. So I, I, I just can't, I can't go back and pluck one out, really, Mark, but it's, it, it's a good question. But he has always struggled with integrity issues because as I don't think he thinks almost as a matter of philosophy uh, that's important uh, in, in life. Um, so, you know, it's, well, anyway, uh, thank you for that. I, Go and have another walk around Burgess Park and we'll try and come up with some comparable figure. Uh, laundry Joe, so-called, because Joe uh, does his laundry while listening to the podcast, says he thought at first the Owen Patton story was a bubble one, you know, that wouldn't break through, um, and it might actually work in Boris Johnson's favour. Um, but he now wonders, uh, having thrown Patterson under the bus, um, it suggests someone unreliable and unprincipled, whereas at first he thought uh, this is laundry joke could be perceived as loyalty to Patterson. By the way, there is something in that. Um, uh, Johnson, it, Johnson's loyalty to individuals, I mean, he could shaft them as well, um, is interesting and not to be wholly dismissed. So, for example, Blair now admits he shouldn't have sacked Peter Mandelson in one of the endless sagas Mandelson got involved with. And I wrote at the time it was wrong, the sacking of Mandelson. Blair did the easy thing, which was to follow media opinion and frenzy and sack him. Uh, Tony Blair often did the easiest thing whilst claiming radical boldness. Um, and it was too easy, and he should have stuck by Peter Mandelson. And sometimes Johnson deserves credit because, say, on these issues, the media turn on anyone um and yet he stands by people sometimes but as you say by the end patterson had been wholly shafted within 24 hours um ben corrigan from a sunny pool uh the current defender of the government quasi quatang uh, he's the latest in a long line of these plucky chaps yeah it's true uh seemingly chosen for their indefatigable ability to answer questions that haven't been asked and defend the government's uh, uh, Trumpian shamelessness. Every government has one. Uh, Michael Meacher was a particularly good example of the breed. How are they chosen? He wasn't actually Ben. Uh, Tony Blair didn't let Michael Meacher near a microphone very often, although he did an outrageous thing. Michael Meacher was um, uh, a junior environment minister. He wasn't made a cabinet minister. Uh, when the rules were that shadow cabinet members should be immediately put into the cabinet, even though Meacher had been in the shadow cabinet. He, he was a junior minister responsible for farming. And do you remember there was that anti-government uh, uh, countryside alliance march? And Blair, who didn't want to be against anyone, sent Meacher on the march, even though the march was against government policy. Uh, so he used him in that respect. Michael Meacher was a... a a, a rather on, on some levels naive figure lovely figure uh and uh way on the left of uh, new labor he used john reed a lot when there were pr problems uh john reed moved from cabinet post to cabinet post every five minutes but was always on uh the today program uh, uh trying to defend the government when it was in some deep hole um but and and, and reed did it with considerable skill uh this lot haven't got that art 
Kathy Mears, uh, it's uh, not so much a wonky supermarket trolley as a turbo-powered car with no brakes or steering. Uh, where will this end? Why? That's the joy of politics, Kathy. We don't know where it'll end. Um, but the metaphor, uh, yeah, you should help write Dominic Cummings' blogs, Kathy. Uh, he was the one who created the image of the trolley. Uh, but I think you should tell him about a turbo-powered car with no brakes or steering. Uh, he'll 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 lift it. Um, uh, David Fisher, this is the sort of mud that doesn't tend to stick to Johnson. How much harm electorally do you foresee a scandal such as this having? Well, I think we've uh, kind of uh, discussed it. Um, it. It is a dangerous moment, but we don't know quite how dangerous yet. Um, Paul Grant, uh, difficult to find a question which is neither tendentious nor obscure. Oh, right, okay. Um, uh, oh, yeah, this is on electoral reform. Uh, how you actually, because I'm sceptical about how you even frame a question in a referendum. Would you like a fairer voting system? You can't ask that question in a referendum. Paul agrees. Uh, would you like a voting system which reflects more accurately the will of the people? Uh, can't ask that one. He says tendentious, but less so. Um, and the other one is obscure. Would you like a proportional representational voting system? Yeah, well, if you, uh, you know, I dread to think what the turnout would be at that kind of referendum. It was very low when the coalition had one. Um, so we'll see. Um, uh, you know, many of you there's some questions on it coming up I think you know want it but I'm not uh I'm still not convinced uh Ryan McMullen writes from San Francisco god Ryan are you listening to this in the sun um uh the question relates to oh yeah he, he mentions Christiana Amanpour's uh interview and he wonders because it was a very she's very firm authoritative not aggressive but forensic not just with boris johnson but with everybody and he mentions the rte and their coverage of brexit um and tony Connolly's brilliant reporting he writes i think for the oh, does he work for rte or the irish times anyway uh which is rich in detail and analysis and Ryan wonders why we get less of that from the London-based media and Westminster uh, journalists. I think we do get some quite good analysis in the FT, although it comes from a certain perspective and from some columnists. Uh, but, yeah, um, that you mentioned models and that their kind of approach became less fashionable in the British media uh, where, where the appetite for confrontation and frenzy as uh, represented by Question Time on BBC One was the fashion and to some extent still is but the BBC hasn't got much leadership at the moment so uh, you have to say to some extent still is because it's not clear really where they stand in matters of great depth as i talked about last week like impartiality what it really means um uh, okay um, i'm gonna rush through and summarize a few few others and i'm sorry if i didn't get to you uh, dominic uh, uh toy uh, wonders whether with northern ireland elections coming down the track we could be facing or boris johnson could be facing two nationalist governments in scotland and in northern ireland uh with 
uh, having a similar agenda of either independence or reunification, but ultimately leaving the union uh, and what that might mean. Uh, Paul Cooper has some interesting analogy uh, analysis on that phrase, high-wage, high-skilled economy, a uh, much-used phrase which he describes is catchy but imprecise um, and uh, fails really to address in a nuanced way uh, working conditions, working rights, and so on. Um, and uh, there are limited advantages of high pay if inflation drives up prices and costs of living. A 5% pay rise is good if you earn 100k, but pointless if you earn 20k and it's anyway wiped out by prices. Yeah, good analysis of that phrase. So it's an example like, aren't you playing politics? the ubiquity of who can disagree with a high-wage, high-skilled economy until you think a bit more about what that actually means. Uh, Chris Park, um, the uh, I agree with your comments on tax and spend, that great thing, tax and spend, which, by the way, in an election campaign, I can tell you, will wipe out sleaze. It will just wipe it out. Um, it, it, it becomes like an accountancy thing. Uh, the British general elections all about so if you spend x on this you'll have to cut this with it's all it's all a game dangerous game uh, if you look at our peers in northern Europe they nearly all have government spending levels of around 45 percent yeah uh, even though many are much richer than we are to me the obvious conclusion to draw is that government spending on this level is an inevitable and unavoidable consequence of running a modern civilized nation-state with an aging population. Um, it's not a question of left versus right. Uh, should Labour be careful about criticising Tory increases and should they instead be honest with the public about the fact that more tax rises are inevitable in the future? It's a brilliant question, Chris. I'll return to it in a podcast because you are absolutely right um, that it is unavoidable and that national insurance rise was one reflection that it is unavoidable. Um, the, the trouble for a Labour leadership is that this area is so thorny um, that if they were wholly honest about the requirement to get up to other Northern European countries, uh, they risk being slaughtered. Um, and I'm afraid general election campaigns in Britain is not about candour. They probably are anywhere, but they on tax and spend, it's, it is it is not about that. Um, okay, Philip Martin, uh, greatly enjoying the podcast and the new book. Thank you, Philip. Uh, BBC, he was talking about the BBC's impartiality investigation, which I talked about last week. Um, I agree with you about the need to define it, and that feels even more acute given the way political debate has changed from when I was first interested in the 1970s, age 10. Yeah, me too. That's when I got interested, age 10. Um, impartiality is easier to deliver when two sides hold deeply held opposing views but articulate them rooted in fact and broad rep uh, respect for the audience. But how is it to be delivered when arguments are framed with fundamental untruths? Uh, Philip, I kind of disagree with you about that, actually. I think all political debate, um, and certainly elections, including in the 1970s, um, often were based on knowingly false premises. For example, the Tory famous poster, the Saatchi poster of Labour isn't working with a large queue outside a dole office. Uh, uh, 
you know, when Margaret Thatcher knew her monetarist policies were going to increase unemployment considerably and did. So these kind of things have always gone on in politics. And, and you know, Harold Wilson, you know, his social contract, he knew it was vague in 74, for example, you know. So um, these things have always gone on. It's just hard um, to navigate the anger that's around at the moment if you're the BBC, but by no means impossible. But they need to have a grown-up debate about what the constraints are on them and what they can do. They can't do what other journalists can do, um, which is analyse coming from certain perspectives. Um, and, and that makes it very difficult because analysis is about... You know, you could have two different perspectives and it comes together and people listen to both and form their own views. They can't do that. But they can stage um, debates and interviews in an intelligent way and allow interviews and debates to have space um, in terms of duration. And, you know, just very simple things they could do. But they get into such a mess. Oh, let's analyse how we're doing this. and all. Anyway, Philip, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, I've been sent... Sorry if I didn't read out your question, by the way. There have been so many brilliant ones, uh, but we've had quite a range. Um, and, yeah, I've been asked to say, please do subscribe if you don't leave a review, because apparently that gets others to be alerted to our time together each week and um, so if you subscribe you get it automatically I love it um, when I subscribe to podcasts it's like the old days when newspapers were delivered I used to get so excited oh, the papers arrived rush now now it's podcasts arriving uh, if you subscribe automatically and as I say just a reminder uh, get your tickets for King's Place Rock and Roll Politics Special Christmas Special December the 9th uh, or if you're on the south coast at the Rope Tackle Arts Centre on December the 8th, we will have some fun together and might see some of you at book festivals too. In the meantime, have a great, great week, whatever you're doing, and let's gather together to make sense of it all next time. Thank you. Thank you.